Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Monica Sharma, and on this edition, we will feature manipulative parasites, space spiders on the loose, and turtle evolution. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Not quite. But first up, here's the news with Mark West. This week, we're bringing you the latest news in global warming, and it's been recently discovered that global warming may actually avert a coming ice age. Scheduled shifts in the Earth's orbit should plunge the planet into a deep freeze thousands of years from now, but current changes to our atmosphere may stop it from occurring. Professor Thomas Crowley from the University of Edinburgh and Dr William Hyde of the University of Toronto recently reported in Nature that the current level of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere could negate the onset of the next ice age, which could occur around about 10,000 years from now. However, we have to be careful, this is not an argument in favour of global warming. Over its lifetime of a few billion years, the Earth has experienced long periods of cold weather. The big freezes are interspersed with interglacial periods of relative warmth, and we are in the middle of them right now, and we have been since the end of the last ice age 11,000 years ago. These climate changes have natural causes and are thought to occur because of changes in the Earth's orbit, meaning more or less energy is hitting the Earth as its orbit changes. Professor Crowley now says there's enough CO2 in the atmosphere as a result of fossil fuel burning and deforestation to offset any future cooling impacts that may happen due to orbital shifts. He said, even the level that we have now is more than sufficient. If we cut back on CO2, that would probably still be enough. Present-day concentrations of CO2 are the highest during the last 650,000 years and probably during the last 20 million years. But Crawley cautions us against thinking that carbon dioxide is now good. We don't want to give people that impression, he says. You can't use this argument to justify human-induced global warming. Left unchecked, climate change could inflict widespread drought and flooding by the end of the century, translating into hunger, homelessness and other stresses for millions of people. And in slightly less deadly climate change news, it has been recently found that the chemical signature of wine's bouquet reflects the amount of fossil fuel-derived carbon dioxide in the air over the vineyard, and researchers plan on using this chemical signature to track the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. The approach to looking at fossil fuel-derived carbon dioxide measures the amount of the radioactive isotope of carbon, carbon carbon-14, which is created by cosmic rays high in the atmosphere. The isotope represents a small proportion of the carbon atoms in the CO2 in the atmosphere and is taken up by plants as they grow. Over time, carbon-14 decays into the isotope nitrogen-14. Fossil fuels made from plant material that lived hundreds of millions of years in the past have no remaining carbon-14. So when fossil fuels are burned, the resulting CO2 is nearly carbon-14 free. Air with less carbon-14 in its CO2 carries higher amounts of fossil fuel-derived carbon. This signature is carried through the plants as they use the CO2 to grow throughout the season and into the wine made from that year's grapes. 
So next time you're trying to show off your wine knowledge and how refined your palate is, see if you can pick the amount of fossil fuel derived carbon dioxide in the wine's bouquet. I bet you'll be a hit at your next party. And back to more serious climate change news, and glaciers high in the Himalayas are dwindling faster than anyone thought, putting nearly a billion people living in South Asia in peril of losing their water supply. Throughout India, China and Nepal, some 15,000 glaciers cover the Tibetan Plateau. Although the Tibetan Plateau is 7,200 metres above sea level, it's not secluded from the effects of global warming. Glaciers around the planet are usually dated by looking for two signatures of radioactivity buried in the ice. These are the leftovers from American and Russian atomic bomb testing in the 1950s and 1960s. Who said that bomb testing was for nothing? It was for science. However, in the samples from the Tibetan Plateau, there was no sign of the tests. In fact, the glacier had melted so much that its exposed surface dated to 1944. The researcher, Lonnie Thompson of Ohio State University, said that in more than 20 years of sampling glaciers from all over the world, this was the first time that this had happened. And as we all try to avert global warming by turning to renewable energy, news comes to us that mega wind farms could actually create weather. Wind farms could have such a major impact on weather that they could even steer storm systems, according to new research coming out of the US. In the US, wind power still only accounts for a little over 1% of electricity generation. But the industry is growing fast, with the US Department of Energy aiming to have 20% of its electricity by wind power by 2030. To find out what effects these wind farms might have on wind patterns, Daniel Barry and Daniel Kirk Davidov from the University of Maryland concocted an experiment. They took the pattern of expanding turbine fields to an extreme and used a computer model to calculate what might happen if all the land from Texas to central Canada and from the Great Lakes to the Rocky Mountains were covered in one massive wind farm. On average, the mammoth installation lowered wind speeds by 2 to 3 metres per second, but the turbines also disrupted air currents on a large scale that rippled out like waves across the northern hemisphere. As they spread out, the waves sometimes ran into storm systems a few days later, knocking them several hundred miles off course. This is the butterfly effect, right? Kirk Davidoff said. It's just that we have a really big butterfly. And that's it for the news. If you're gazing up at the skies this weekend, wondering what to do about this global warming you keep hearing about, then maybe you might find some inspiration there. Venus, Jupiter and a crescent moon are all getting together and crowding around each other for an unusual group shot. Jupiter and Venus will appear only about two degrees apart on Sunday, and then on Monday they will be joined by a crescent moon right next to them. This might at least make you smile. Ian Wolfe talking parasites with Professor John Dalton, Director of the Institute for the Biotechnology of Infectious Diseases at the University of Technology, Sydney.
He spoke with Ian Wolfe about his research into the way parasites manipulate their host's immune system. My name is John Dalton. I'm the director of the Institute for the Biotechnology of Infectious Diseases, IBID for short. And I believe you're looking at parasites that do nasty things to their hosts. We do. We look at a range of infectious diseases. Some of those are microbes, the bacteria, and others are parasites, ranging from small little crickers that go into cells and big worms that actually invade your tissues or your intestines, and they can get as large as several metres. Goodness. And what started your interest in parasites? I guess when I heard the numbers of people that are infected with all these parasites worldwide, it's astounding, really, when you think that one-third of the world's population, that's about, what, two billion people that are infected with worms? I mean, that's a lot of people, and that's mainly in tropical regions, areas mainly that are inhabited by poor people. So they're unfortunate, and that's just the huge number. When I heard that, I felt that maybe I should do something about it. So how do you actually look at the parasites? How do you find them? How do we find them? Well, in our research institute, we use generally animal models for human infections. That's not to say that in humans you can't find them because many of these parasites live inside. Obviously, you can't open up humans, but the parasites often liberate eggs or progeny that are carried out generally in the faeces, and that's how you generally diagnose infections in humans, by looking at faeces and looking for eggs of the parasites. However, in our institute, we use animal models and many of these infections either directly infect animals or a similar species would infect the animal, and therefore it's an accessible way for us to study their means of infection, their immunology, how to develop vaccines, and our new uh, potential drugs for killing them. So, yeah, and, and we've got terrific facilities here for doing that. Can you also look at them in the tissues, in the body? In the body there are, but you have to use non-invasive methods. If they're inside internal organs, such as the liver, you may be able to use sonography or to look, but that's very, very crude. You can't get a good look at them. Some of the intestinal parasites, you can use endoscopes to look up in the intestine and monitor, uh, you know, look at the way they feed on the intestinal tissue or whatever, but they're very visual ways of looking at parasites. We're more interested in molecular biology or the biochemistry of parasites or I'm looking at their genes, looking at how they develop, how they live inside the host, how they infect, all these features that we're trying to develop vaccines and drugs to interfere with. So how do you get to look at the genes of the worms that you find in the parasites? Yeah, that's easy. We just get our hands on some parasites and then we basically mash them up in particular solutions and those solutions extract the DNA when we take out the DNA it can be any kind of DNA and we then study those genes by using various techniques like polymerase chain reactions which is like the same type of studies we use in forensic science to identify people's DNA and the different types of DNA so we can do the same with parasites use these techniques to isolate specific genes and then we can take those genes and we can sequence the genes We can take the genes and put them into other less complicated organisms like bacteria or yeast and get those to produce the product of the genes and then study the products of of those genes in the surrogate system. So in the surrogate system, how do you attack the parasites? Well, when we use surrogate systems, we're usually looking at specific molecules. Say, for example, say we've identified a, a gene that might produce a potential molecule that's essential to the parasite. 
and we would say, well, if we could get that essential molecule, we could produce that molecule and we could use it as a vaccine so that the host or the human can develop an antibody response that would target that molecule in the parasite. So what we would do is take the gene of that molecule, we place that gene into, say, a yeast, like a brewer's yeast, then that yeast would make the product of that gene and would put it into the brew. We would isolate that protein product and we can use that as the vaccine. So it's just we use yeast and bacteria as these surrogates for individual genes, not for the whole genome, but individual genes. And these parasites actually change the physiology of the host, is that right? They change a lot of things in the host, and that's how they survive for a long time. Many of these parasites, especially the worm parasites, can last for as many as 20 years inside a host, or even longer. Now, to last that long inside a host, you've got to have a very clever way of manipulating the host immune response because humans do develop a strong immune response to these parasites and yet we ask the question if you have a strong immune response why don't you eliminate the parasite well the answer to that is the parasite induces an immune response that it can handle it actually manipulates the immune system to develop a type of response that doesn't hurt it and so we again study how they do that and then we can figure out how the parasite can actually modulate, we say, or manipulate the host immune response. Maybe we can overcome and beat its strategy. Um, and that's what we're very interested in knowing, is how parasites actually can live so long and change our immune system. Uh, our physiology, while it does damage to our uh, livers or uh, whatever tissues it invades, and that obviously hurts us, it hurts us but not enough for us to die and because the parasite doesn't want us to die or else it'll die um, but it hurts us for a long time over a prolonged period of time as, as I said as long as 20 years ultimately it might do us enough damage that it could kill us uh, but in general the parasite just damages a little bit and it survives and we survive and thus there's this um, it's not exactly a symbiosis but it's a relationship where both of us survive in a, in, in a situation where there's heavy infections. Um, so how do these parasites get into people in the first place? Well, again, they have all sorts of strategies. It depends. Many of them get in through the oral cavity. We pick them up by eating contaminated food or our hands being contaminated by soil where, where larvae might be. And if they get into, of course, the um, intestine, they first have to get past our acidic stomach then they get into the intestine and they might stay there and hang on to the wall of the intestine. Others burrow through the intestinal wall and then invade the, the, um, the tissues like the liver. And then there's other ones that get in through our skin. Now those are particularly interesting. For instance, ones called schistosomes that you, you can pick up in places like Egypt. They're in the water and the little larvae have particular sensors that can pick up lipids on our skin and they target our skin very effectively. They bind to our skin and then they release enzymes that digest the skin, burrow a hole, and then they enter into the blood system. So they have various ways. But generally, the majority of parasites will get in orally and then penetrate our intestines or stay within the intestines. So what's the big challenge for you coming up? Well, this whole idea, as I mentioned, of parasites 
manipulating the host immune system is very fascinating, not only for parasitologists, but people that are very interested in the immune system per se. And the reason for that is because parasites can manipulate our immune system, they might have new strategies that we can apply for manipulating our immune system. Because many diseases of developed worlds and the modern worlds, such as diabetes, certain cancers, arthritis, osteoporosis, these are diseases that are of our immune system, where our own immune system goes a little wrong and it starts attacking our own cells. For example, in arthritis, it might attack the joints, the collagen or the synovial fluid in the joints. In multiple sclerosis, our own immune system targets our nervous system. Now, so parasites might have a key to manipulating an immune response, and maybe we could use their strategies to help other diseases where we could employ their strategies to affect the immune system so that we can dampen the damage done to our own tissues and those. So I think the great explosion in the future in terms of the, the research, the novel research and exciting end, will be exploiting parasites' knowledge of our immune system to use in our own way, in a more favourable way, to uh, target serious diseases. That's going to be an exciting area, is an exciting area, and will be in the next five, ten years. John Dalton, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Professor John Dalton explaining how parasites' knowledge of our immune system can be used to improve human health. Parasite in a pill. And you're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2ser.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. So, what's happening in the world of science this week? Caitlin? Well, it turns out that life is sweet and only 26,000 light years away. A sugar molecule has been found in a distant region of the Milky Way. This space sugar may be the building block for alien life forms. The molecule, which is called glycolaldehyde, is regarded by astrobiologists as an important marker of possible life. This sugar is important for making DNA and is linked to the origin of life on Earth. Earlier this year, another molecule important for making DNA was found in deep space. It was a precursor to an amino acid called glycine. So the next step is scanning deep space for evidence of amino acids. Who knows what kind of life we might find if we follow these building blocks of life in space. And in other news, water is confirmed as a major greenhouse gas. So we should use lots and lots of it, I think. Oh, very wise words there, Caitlin. Absolutely. Use as much water as possible. Gets rid of those greenhouse gases. You heard it, boys and girls. (laughs) Well, what they've actually found is that water vapour is Earth's most abundant greenhouse gas. So the extent of its contribution to global warming has actually been debated over time. But using satellite data, the heat-trapping effect of water in air has been accurately observed now. A team at the Texas A&M University have confirmed that the heat-amplifying effect of water vapour is strong enough to double the warming effect of increasing levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. During mid-2005, most atmospheric water vapour was collected at tropical latitudes, particularly over South Asia, where monsoon thunderstorms swept it high above the land. The lead researcher, Andrew Dessler, says that this new data set shows that as surface temperature increases, so does the atmospheric humidity. 
We've known this for a while, that water is a producer of global warming, but it's, it's absolutely natural, isn't it? It is. It's like natural. The, the oceans, they have a high heat storage capacity, and it's more so just that this team has actually analysed the data set and they've seen, okay, yes, this mm. is really contributing to global warming. Well, is there anything that we can do about it? Use more water. How does that help? <laughs> no, it won't help. <laughs> there is absolutely nothing we can do about this. Solar-powered sea slugs by the seashore. Oh, I dare you to say that again. New Scientist reports that Alicia chlorotica lives along the Atlantic seaboard of the US and uses chloroplasts from the algae it eats to make itself as green as a leaf and to make food from sunlight. Chloroplasts are the green parts of leaf cells that convert sunlight and carbon dioxide into sugars, maybe like those found in space. Mm. At the University of Maine... They found that young Elysia chlorotica sea slugs, fed with algae for two weeks, can live the rest of their year-long lives without needing to eat again. This presents a mystery, because chloroplasts alone aren't enough for the slug to make food. It needs more genes. They found the slug has been incorporating genes from algae into its own DNA. That's right, it's recombining its own DNA with plants. And that the DNA is even present in the sex cells, so it may be passed on to the slug's offspring. Now, it's not new for DNA to cross species like this, but it is new for the DNA to be active and doing its job. So not only do we need to find out how the slug gets the genes from a plant into its mollusk DNA, but we need to know how the genes become functional. Could humans become solar-powered too? This animal-plant hybrid could lead the way to another genetic revolution. It's a whole new meaning for going green. Now, let me tell you a tragic story of a spider's fall from stardom quite literally. On the show last week, we reported that the United States had sent two orb spiders to space. Of particular interest was their web-making capacity in zero gravity. Not only did the spiders fail miserably in producing anything that resembled a web, one of them went missing in action, hiding from the embarrassing situation, no doubt. Somewhere out there with that sugar molecule, we have a little itsy-bitsy spider. But something else out of this world, scientists at the University of Boston have been successful in giving a mute man the ability to say vowels as he thinks them. There is an explanation, and it involves one speech synthesizer and mere brain power. Well, brain implants, to be correct. The researchers implanted a brain electrode into a man with locked-in syndrome, a syndrome where patients are fully conscious but paralysed unable to move or communicate in any way except often with the eyelids. They first had to test him by MRI to make sure the brain signals resembled that of a healthy man's as he thought of his vowel sounds. They then implanted the electrode into the area of the brain that produces speech. But this is no ordinary electrode. The electrode is coated in factors that stimulate neurons to grow, which not only improves its function, but holds the electrode in place. So far, the man is able to say three vowels clearly. But in time, they are hoping this research will give these people a chance to say whole sentences as they think it. Certainly brings a whole new meaning to thinking out loud, don't you think? Mm. So which three vowels would you teach someone first? Well, this is what I was thinking. I sort of like my R and E, but, you know, there's there's definitely... I, I think in, they're, they're planning for him to start saying full words in a matter of months. They're going to hopefully train this man to say words. And think about how exciting it must be for him, unable to communicate for so long, to all of a sudden 
have this possibility ahead of him that he may be able to communicate with those people around him. Be a wonderful feeling. Did you want to know about shell-shocked turtles? Ooh, Caitlin, tell me. Well, there's been a long simmering debate over reptile evolution. Just how did the turtle get its shell? A perfectly intact 220-million-year-old turtle fossil has settled this debate. In a study published in this month's Nature Journal, scientists reported the discovery of the Odontocellus semitostatia, which means toothed, half-shell turtle. The ancestral turtle from the Triassic period was found in modern-day China with a shell on its front, but not on its back. This missing link species has its outer shell emerging directly from the ribs and backbone, and not from the skin, as some have argued. Also published earlier this month, though, the discovery of an ancient turtle in Scotland suggested that turtles have remained very unchanged for a whopping 164 million years. But I think the Chinese turtle has a good 56 million years or so on the Scottish turtle. So now this finding has confirmed that uh, the turtle did in fact get its shell starting from its front and not from its back. So I wonder how that would have protected the turtle in those days. Well, yeah, it has been the long-simmering debate uh, with the reptile evolution. They've been trying to debate whether or not they would have evolved the top shell or the bottom shell first. And this one here does confirm that it was the bottom shell, uh, sorry, the front. So that means that they were more likely to be predators from the bottom that were reaching up Coming to grab up them. through the sand. Possibly. It also means that's uh, possibly where a lot of their sensitive organs were or where sort of the death kill was for mm. the turtles as well. So they developed the protective coating there. Certainly make them very easy to serve up as a dish. They come in their own plate. Until they develop another one as well on their back. <laughs> Unless they always keep their backs to the wall. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to contribute to Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send us an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And contributing to the program were Ian Wolfe, Mark West and Caitlin Howlett. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Monica Sharma. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
Good morning, how are you? I'm Dr. Worm. I'm interested in things. I'm not a real doctor, but I am a real worm. I have an actual worm. I live like a worm, and I like to play the drum.